here in the 11FS office in London for episode 82 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Chat App Kick is in a Royal Rumble with the SEC, Multicoin declares victory after losing a third of their capital, and Long Bitcoin short the bankers? All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined, fortunately, unfortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, by Colin G. Platt. How's life by the field? Has the field frozen over? The field is just above freezing here. Uh, I don't think it's been quite as cold up as it has been up in the frozen north there, though. It is. It's been pretty cold in the UK, but what is um, out in the uh, in the Midwest at the moment, it's, it's insanely cold. So shout out to those guys. Stay warm, everybody. Uh, what have you been up to this week, Colin? I've been trying to keep my head above water this week, unlike our friends at Multicoin Capital. <laughs> oh, it's harsh. You're a harsh mellow. <laughs> That's a thing. We're going to make that a thing. Uh, so I've had some interesting chats with um, FMIs and exchanges, and I've been working pretty closely with a client around the future of uh, foreign exchange, especially with countries with cur- uh, currency controls. Like It's a very manual paper-based process, and how can you automate a whole bunch of that? Uh, some interesting insights, but um, you know, that's one for another day. Um, let's get on with the news, shall we? Alrighty, first story this week comes from Coindesk.com and chat app Kick says it's going to fight the SEC, uh, famous last words, over a possible ICO action. Um, so the Canada-based messaging app company Kick is planning to fight um, and the it, in relation to an enforcement action over its 2017 ICO, their founder and CEO Ted Livingston said that the firm's token KIN works like a currency and is not an unregistered security. Well, if it works like a currency, probably somebody else should be coming after you, but never mind. They raised nearly $100 million, um, and the CEO also claimed that there are dozens of projects at a similar point because everybody else is committing a crime. No, he didn't say because everybody else is committing a crime. We're fine. That's that's me editorializing. Um, but he did say we all believe that this industry needs regulation, but we also believe that this is not the way to get it. So uh, Livingston further said, Kin does not satisfy the Howie test. Um, what do we know about this kin token, Colin? Well, we know that Howie is very displeased, not satisfied one bit. Uh, I guess that uh, Kick is a second-rate telegram of sorts? Second-rate telegram uh, looks a bit more like WhatsApp because it's green, but otherwise, yes. <laughs> You've obviously used it. I've not. Uh, it's funny to me that a company of this size, which has had some traction in fundraising histories with VC, all of a sudden last year decided it needed to go down the ICO route. Um, I think this is a glimpse that they are having some regrets about that decision and finding that, hey, you know, maybe this is a bit more complicated uh, than we thought if we're going to end up being a security. I think that we're going to see a lot of lessons from this, a lot of read across uh, to what's been happening around the token and security uh, aspects of things. They think uh, a lot of people think that it's just uh, about ticking some boxes and saying, "Okay, fine, we're security. It's really not. Things are a lot more complicated than that. Uh, it makes sense that uh, Kick is fighting this. Uh, and if I were a betting man, of course I'm not. Uh, I would guess the theme here is going to end up, uh, I fought the law and the law won. Can we cue that one up? Yeah, so there's, they've actually gone and published uh, the 
SEC letter as well, uh, which I think is really, really interesting um, and kind of brave, right? I mean, uh, we received this letter from the regulator. Here it is. We're publishing it. Um, kind of an interesting route. Um, and we have seen other enforcement actions that have resulted in fines. We've seen enforcement actions that have resulted in jail time. I think sort of publicly coming out and saying, um, this is stupid, go away, leave us alone, after having raised $100 million um, is not great optics. And you know, the, this cannot stand you in good stead with the SEC. Um, I think, Colin, you've talked about it before, and most of our listeners who've, who've worked in banks will know, you, you get these kind of notices all the time. The, the artists who uh, slowly, patiently, and responsibly deal with them, not to go in public and say, oh my God, a regulator asked me a question. This is really, really bad. I Yeah, I think that's the key, is like slowly, patiently answering questions in private, in quiet, and not trying to, to make a lot of noise about it are the ones that tend to fare better. Um, we'll see. Um, maybe they're listening to their lawyers. Maybe they're saying make a stink out of it. Maybe they're not, and they're they're trying it anyways. Yeah, it's it's an odd strategy. And and I think, again, one that uh, you know is kind of coming out in the wash. Uh, and again, sort of uh, begs that question, you know, is, is where will the SEC draw the line in the sand? We've seen, you know, guidance from the FCA recently that sort of says there is such thing as a utility token, um, that, that it is entirely possible, even with worked examples. Um, the SEC, um, I'm taking more of a, like, if you issue something in a certain fashion um, and other people are trading that thing, it looks a lot more like a security to them. Yeah, and I think that there's lots of uh, reasons as well to, to rule that in. And from everything I've ever spoken with a U.S. lawyer, they always say, you know, there's there's a reason this is such a profitable industry. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. What being a lawyer that is? Being a lawyer that is. <laughs> yeah, indeed, laws are written by lawyers, right? And they want to charge. Um, so, uh, what are we going to see in the next two years from ICOs? Are they just going to completely disappear? Is are they going to become securities tokens? We talked last week about you know you have some doubts about securities tokens, but you know, will we see people trying this? Because I know um, there are still people out there trying to offer these things and trying to trying to get investors. I mean, I just, I think it's pretty obvious why the attraction is there. People see this as a as a quicker, easier, cheaper route to to raise funds, and hey, that's great. Um, and it shows that there's a clear demand for that. I think we all agree that. Um, but you kind of have to go back and ask the question of like, you really separate legitimate projects that are trying to come in with goodwill, raise money from wherever uh, to fund a project. They should be fostered. There's a lot of other things in there that I think anybody can look, sit back and look objectively and say, hey, this, this project is, is maybe not looking to fulfill the promises and is really just trying to exploit uh, cheap money. Those things should go away. Um, but I think in, <laughs> in the away. things go away. Yeah. Um, but in the things that are going in and, and should reasonably be able to raise money, um, maybe, maybe that's a problem that, uh, more classical technologies could, uh, be used to fulfill in a lot of cases. Maybe not all of them, but, uh, I, I would ask the question why there aren't more businesses trying to come in from a very technology agnostic point of view and offer that service. Well, we have seen the, some of the crowdfunding platforms look at the this this subject. And and if you're like uh, an entrepreneur and you're trying to raise capital, there was always that question of like, if you're uh, a, a white male graduate from Stanford University, you're probably going to get funded. If you don't fit that description almost exactly, getting funded is, is so much harder. Um, and debt may not always be the right answer. Banks aren't always willing to 
lend, uh, especially to people in rural communities, no matter how uh, no matter how good their idea may be or how strong their track record as an entrepreneur may be. So that more routes to funding um, surely is a good thing. Um, it probably just says there's demand out there for this sort of thing from from entrepreneurs and small businesses. Yeah, and I think I think one thing that's kind of uh, cool and at the same time very dangerous is that that viral effect with it as well. Like, if you look at some of the the more successful crowdfunding things or uh, more open uh, funding solutions, I mean, how many good examples can you give me of uh, crowdfunding things that have viral? Like, I would say Monzo is one of the ones that's done it really well. They've developed a community, and people are kind of cheering it along. Not saying whether I think it's it's a good investment or not, but there are a lot of people that truly believe in the vision of it um, and want to see it succeed and tell their friends to go sign up and go invest or do whatever they want to do. Is that something that should be fostered? I don't know. So there's something really interesting as well. I don't know if you've heard of the um, uh, brewing company Brewdog. Uh, so they're uh, one of these alternative ales businesses based out of the UK. And they um, they actually issue debt um, as, as a crowd debt um, sort of instrument. And, and they you know, sort of their uh, customers were able to buy that debt and, and seek a return from it. And I think this ad- brand advocacy-driven uh, issuance or, or seeking of liquidity, seeking capital, is a really interesting way for an enterprise to go about not only building community, but building brand affinity and to give its customers something else, you know, to literally give its customers a piece of itself or its, a piece mm-hmm. of its future revenues um, and get them bought in in a different way. Um, we, we kind of got away from that in the past couple of decades. Like if you look at broader financial markets, everything was held by some nameless, faceless corporation on behalf of some faceless corporation that was wrapped up in your pension or your 401k uh, that, that people didn't have an interaction with or, or a closeness to those brands. Whereas you see what's happening in mainstream media now um, in the UK, we've had the vegan sausage Roland Greggs. Um, the probably the global example is Nike and Colin Kaepernick. This uh, this signaling of a brand with virtue and 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 kind of giving a sense of purpose to who's buying into the brand also buys into the shares of the brand also buys into a lot more of it. Like that brand driven fundraising type of uh, messaging, I think is kind of uh, a real opportunity that I'm yet to see, uh, yet to see kind of come to fruition. And it's a shame that ICOs uh, sort of went such a uh, roundabout route around the regulations when you have something in crowdfunding and uh, the Jobs Act where you, you could probably do this by the book. Yeah, you could. I mean, there's always going to be an element, um, depending on the jurisdiction, of trying to push the envelope. And pushing the envelope is great. Um, but, you know, there's there's probably some room for that. But if you um, if they give you an inch and you take a mile, that's, that's a whole other thing. The thing I'd like to add, I, I, what I'd love to see, um, and I think there's probably a market out there for it, is like the idea of a reverse offering where the company may have an ongoing need for financing, but essentially you get... A, a group of investors or an investor that come along and say, hey, we'd like to lend you money. Um, do you think you could give us something that fits in these terms? We've seen the crowdfunding go the other way, but maybe um, having that kind of two-way feedback through a technology like uh, a token would be a good way to say, hey, maybe this is a good time that uh, people could tell us what they want as far as is it a debt solution, is it an equity solution, or is it something else? So I like that. So you're aggregating uh, potential investors. They're saying this is the type of investment I'm looking for. And then uh, organizations that might be looking. So it's, it's sort of like peer-to-peer, but more on a syndicate basis. It's an ongoing conversation with your customers who want to take a stake in your future. 
interesting comp- idea and, and and probably want to talk about more as we go but uh, and want to really play with customers if uh, uh, of of brands they would potentially find that really really exciting um but we, we're gonna have to play with that one a little bit more we got to get to the next story though colin we do the next story is well, it comes from Finextra, and it's the Galaxy S10 from Samsung. Uh, a leak apparently suggests that there is a built-in cryptocurrency wallet. So uh, it could come with an in-house wallet, screenshots suggest. Uh, the authenticity of these shots has not been confirmed. However, they do show um, what looks to be an S10 with, quote, a Samsung blockchain key store where users can store their cryptocurrencies. Um, something about um, device and, and built into the hardware key stores that could be that could be interesting here, Colin. Is this is this crypto going mainstream? I, I think that there's probably an element of that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. I'm I'm by no means an expert on on hardware security, but. Uh, my understanding is there's a lot of different secure enclaves in these phones because they're they're quite advanced um, that make them a, a good place to have uh, a wallet. So, you know, why not? But I think it speaks to kind of a wider theme that is really interesting, which is like the notion that these new technologies bring up new problems that never existed before, uh, chiefly the, the, the hardware wallet that you need to have to store cryptocurrency keys. And I mean, I think that the analogy uh, that's a little bit older is, you know, before the internet, there was never really the need to have a virus scanning program. And that was never an industry. Now it's a, it's a very large industry with big name companies that offer security solutions, virus uh, eradication, all these things. What what are the equivalents? What are the other things that come out of cryptocurrencies, out of blockchains, in whatever shape they exist, that just wouldn't have ever existed pre this technology? I think there's something really interesting about uh, hardware security keys being stored in devices in a way that is a consumer wallet for looking after that, for looking after your identity, for looking after your relationship. And it's kind of what Apple tried to do with Passbook. They wanted to be the like... Uh, instead of cards, you'd have keys and they'd be linked to the secure enclave in your device and that would allow you to access things. And that that kind of concept has never really taken off. I mean, Passbook is reasonably successful, um, but it but it hasn't really crossed the chasm. I wonder how much this is, you know, really something aimed at Bitcoin or is it something aimed more at a, at a Passbook sort of play where it allows me to access um, centralized databases and, and manage my key store for those as well, which, you know, could be hugely compelling. I was talking to a company yesterday here in France that, that's working on those types of things as well, of, of going down the kind of identity route with with PKI and all those things. Um, it, I mean, there's there's certainly probably a lot of crossover there, but I think the the bigger the bigger story to me is really like the the adding the value of PKI into our everyday lives and and using yeah. that in a very direct manner. Um, I mean, we Completely. talked about this on the show last week, like direct custody being. One of the kind of benefits of having a token structure. What are the things you could imagine uh, extrapolating that out onto? I think that's where it gets exciting, right? Is uh, like if I'm a global social network and I have billions of customers of uh, my sort of chat applications in 
economies where the central bank isn't very strong, there isn't good payments infrastructure, people are using lots of cash and they want to pay each other peer to peer. But the risk with holding cash as somebody who runs a market stall is there's a good chance that cash will be robbed and stolen from you um, on your drive home at night. Like that's solving a real problem for a consumer if that cash can be digital in a market in which you know digital bank driven cash or even mobile telco cash isn't been particularly successful. And consumers like that. Consumers like the concept mm-hmm. of them owning it. And the problem with trying to give everybody a bank account or even a mobile telco account is you still have a bunch of compliance rules. Whereas cash is something that they can hold on to right now. A digital equivalent of that for those markets is interesting because it it sort of allows them to solve that problem without having the centralized authority challenge. But then on the flip side of it, because you've got that ecosystem, you can see some of the data and what's happening in that ecosystem. You might be able to even bring people into a formal banking system or lend to them or, or create these informal economies around it. And if I were a social network or a tech company, I'd find the use of that for tokens really, really compelling. And it'd be helpful if more devices had key stores in them to enable me to, to do that. Um, but, but I imagine there's ways around it and proof of, proof of concepts are, that, are, that are happening along those lines. I wonder. I wonder if it also kind of has some other read across, and I'd be interested to hear what you think on this. Is like, how does this start to create new products that fit into more existing business structures? I mean, if if I was an asset manager and I wanted to have discussions, I wanted to be sure that I was having a discussion with my investors. There's ways I could do that now, but they're all pretty inconvenient. Maybe having an asset manager as an example or an investment bank that talks to uh, their buy side clients. Maybe they'd want to have a more regular dialogue through these. What are the other applications you could potentially use this for? Yeah, so there's um, some really good um, fintechs out there that do sort of um, PKI-driven and some pretty advanced cryptography around key obfuscation and, and some really nice stuff around how do I have a really secure conversation between a high net worth individual and a private banker, for instance. And, and I guess it would work the same in the in the buy-side, sell-side example. Uh, but where this gets interesting is, um, you know, to going back to Vitalik's point on on the interview we did with him a few episodes ago, um, blockchains and tokens generally are pretty good at uh, this thing is no longer true. So uh, mm. this person you're talking to is your asset manager. This person is, we can no longer guarantee that that is your asset manager or that person has left. You know, could somebody walk in and use the same, same terminal and device that had been approved and had a PKI signature set up from it or could somebody hack into it in some way? That this is no longer true example, I think that does add you another element of security that makes those use cases, I think, a little bit more compelling than they used to be. Yeah, or or conditional truths. These these things are true under these conditions, which are publicly available. Yeah, I, I guess this this that thread has a, a long way to run. I guess we're both kind of of the view that um, I guess consumers in developed markets probably shouldn't have super frictionless access to crypto, but if it felt more like cash. That'd be a little bit better, but is there anything left in the crypto world? I mean, you know, uh, the world of futures is is still there in some of the major uh, major exchanges. Yeah, I mean, I, I think futures are really interesting. Um, I'm I, we talked about this a, a while ago on the show um, when the the CME and the CBO launched their futures just over a year ago. Um, it, the way they designed them is is perhaps from a risk point of view not not ideal. I think the the big things we're starting to see, like with the likes of Bact and, and others, is uh, better designs for those products that include physical delivery, which means you need lots of these other things we're talking about, like custody, in place. Um, but you know, if those markets start to become more liquid, 
when do we start to have other products that come out and start to move back into that um, private banking world or into the asset management realm? Things like structured products potentially become uh, an interesting play as a diversification, as a way to move into new markets. Um, whether that's uh, you know six months from now or, or longer than that, hard to say, but I think it's something that when it comes, uh, a lot of people will be jumping on it. So if I'm at a, at a bank and I run a structured product teams, what's the pitch for why I'd want to be looking at, at Bitcoin futures more closely? I mean, the, the name of the game around that stuff is, is having a new product that people will buy, right? Mm-hmm. And being the first one to have that is the new solution. Um, you have to have all the infrastructure set up. You need to be able to offer reasonable prices. Um, but as long as there's interest, whether it's up or it's down, to be able to manage that risk, potentially through more traditional investors or potentially through new investors, is an interesting play. I mean, it's it's a marketing product push more than it is fitting anything else in a more traditional business. Indeed. I wonder if the optics around Bitcoin has, has changed that conversation too much, but uh, it's kind of here's something new and it has a, a different uh, asset profile and it could give you you know a different product shape that nobody else has. And like having more optionality about the, the shape of products you offer to customers is, is at least worth looking at. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're starting to see enough corporate activity that actually trades in, in large amounts of these things, something like um, a large Bitcoin miner. Uh, it starts to make sense because they're accepting payments in Bitcoin to help offer them products um, where you get into the more institutional corporate focus. Uh, being able to work with these large miners and help them uh, with solutions that help smooth out their profitability uh, could be interesting things. But, you know, you need to start to have lots of expertise around that and that's maybe not something that comes from the big investment banks to get started um but you know they're they're definitely interesting little green shoots out there that people could be looking at yeah it's interesting to me that um ex- some of the bigger exchanges like Huobi have started to look at uh helping with cash flow for miners you know because they they for for them the uh understanding of how uh the difficulty of bitcoin adjusts with the hash rate is something that's really simply easy to predict and understand whereas i use reasonably with air quotes they they would feel confident that they can predict it and understand it um but the uh the for a bank you know it, if you're completely new to this, there's, there's a steep learning curve. But then my experience of most people in, in the large banks is they know, they like, they know a lot more than they let on sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, there was a time when looking at correlation of credits was, uh, was something that nobody had ever done before. And then boom, all of a sudden it, it happened. Well, there you go. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is brought to you by R3. Um, Blockchain isn't just for financial services. It's for fields in France and tons of other industries can reap major benefits. Uh, Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Uh, Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's quarter platform. Uh, They offer privacy, interoperability, integration and consensus, and the mission critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall. The Coda platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head to r3.com for more info. Uh, And shout out to Todd McDonald once again, because he always listens. Um, uh, Alrighty, uh, this story comes from The Block Crypto. Um, Apparently, a short strategy helped Multicoin Capital post, quote, solid 2018 results. Um, So the crypto hedge fund, uh, 
founded in 2017, held up well against a brutal 2018 crypto market. Uh, the biggest loss was EOS. Uh, the biggest wins um, were sitting out March, uh, November 2018, shorting XRP, LTC, and ETC, and investment into newer protocols and projects like Definity and Backed. Um, so it's um, kind of uh, an interesting period they've had. It seems like they've certainly outperformed the market. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- I thought it was interesting that they pointed out that you know sitting in cash for eight months was was their brightest thing to do when they're getting paid what two and twenty plus. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Uh, one one thing that's interesting to to think about with all these things is is fund launches in the crypto space are much like M and A activity. It starts at the top and it's it's quiet at the bottom. Um, when your your returns would be the opposite of that, um, I, these guys were really big into into some of these projects um, on the long side and on the short side, and I think that there's um, there's definitely a lot of ideology that plays into why they make these investments because coming up with more traditional measures are still quite difficult in this market. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see how those become more uh, complex and more refined as we go along, um, but. I, I, I think it's even though they massively outperformed the market, um, I think it's it's hard to write a letter to your investors saying, right, we lost thirty three cents for every dollar you put in. Um, please be happy with us. <laughs> but ultimately, it, it's not the first industry to go through something like that, right? No, no, absolutely not. And you can definitely see that there's been examples in financial services of far far worse performance um, from people who have been around for a lot longer. So, uh, you know, it, the least worst in this market is is still pretty impressive. And to your point, uh, they, they, they have a, a, you know, the Multicoin guys have a blog that's, you know, and they're pretty vocal in terms of their thesis. And and you got to say that it, if nothing else, it offers original thought um, and it offers um, some perspectives on, you know, possible futures. And there's always a reason why uh, they're, they're making a, a given set of choices, which is a lot more you can say for some of the funds that came out in sort of the last 12 months near the top saying hey we're a fund buy from us everything's going upwards which is which is never a good investment yeah and i, I think that the other thing that kind of come plays into this is a lot of these funds um, and not just picking on multi-coin or, or any of the other ones but they they try to kind of balance this life between are we a vc and we're here to nurture a company and help them get traction or are we a hedge fund and we're focused on profitability um, when they're making investments like Bact, I have to imagine it's more the VC style investment, um, even if there's a very strong board coming into that team. Yeah. Um, when they're talking about shorting any coin or longing any coin and, and reporting on their regular uh, market movements or sitting out a month, I don't know that I would really look at that the same way as a, as a VC. It starts to look a whole lot more hedge fundy. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're going to kind of eventually get a segmentation between crypto investment uh, vehicles where you start to have things that are purely VC looking things saying, we're going to come in, we're going to buy projects and we're going to look more like private equity. Um, And then you're going to have the ones that are trying to move in and out of coins uh, quickly to build alpha on that. And and both will be fine. But I think, uh, again, we need to start to look at how we can split these funds into those different things, which will be a complex process. Would you? Yeah. So one of the interesting things is you see so many of these hybrid fund type plays uh, that you don't see in traditional financial services. Is that just because um, the motives uh, are, are quite different, the skill sets are quite different, or is it just because, uh, like, hey, there was an opportunity to be this hybrid model and nobody had done it before? Um, I, th- I think 
I think there's elements of both. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that the industry is new. People want to just come in and have exposure to it. So they don't really say, right, I want you to focus only on the thing that you're good at, because obviously you can't be good at timing markets and getting entry and exit points at the same time that you would be able to sit with a founder for hours, help make introductions, think about strategy. Yeah. Uh, those are very different skill sets, uh, I think, to that point. Um, but maybe as we start to get more sophisticated investors into this, they will actually demand that. And they would look at somebody like a multi-coin and say, right, you your team may be very good at this, but they're very bad at that. Either break yourself into two parts and set up two different companies or only do one of them because you're really bad at the other one. Um, Interesting that you see that demand. I think given what they've been through in the past 12 months, you know, uh, their sort of trading activities around shorts and their investments into things like uh, backed suggests that, you know, on the on the upside, that both of those decisions seem to be uh, ones that you could argue at this point in history may, have, may look like good ones. Um, and if you weren't able to take one of those, you might have lost out on something. But, yeah. uh, you know, you know the, the world of professional investors far better than I do. So, uh, Well, I'll there's a saying, your... everybody's Warren Buffett in a bull market, right? Yeah, indeed, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a classic. Um, so do, it's interesting that so many um, hedge funds and protocol developers have gone quiet. Um, Multicoin are a bit of an exception, maybe Galaxy Digital or a bit of an exception mm. and, and actually to me that buys credibility when you're coming out wearing your results and kind of taking it on the chin you're definitely sort of still trying to rah rah everything's okay a little bit externally there's a definitely a bit of that going on but there's a there's an honesty here and an intellectual honesty that that's admirable at least yeah i i, I think it's there's definitely the honesty i think the transparency wasn't i i'm this thing came through the block, so either they block crypto, so either they got this through a backdoor. Um, it, it wasn't one hundred percent transparent, but it is uh, a necessity that they're informing their investors. Um, and they they made some good points in it, but I think we also have to remember that it it's a marketing document as any as much as anything else, because there is a real risk that um, when they're underwater, a lot of these uh, investors pull out, and the only thing you're left with you have to start selling your liquid investments. The only thing you're left with are your illiquid or highly underwater investments which may be profitable mm-hmm. uh in the long term but right now there's no way you can get it out back to maybe one of those where you can't actually get money out for the next five or ten years yeah when you have some kind of liquidity event uh that means it could put them out of, out of business so yes you need to put your best foot forward even in the event of a loss you need to look for the best way to sell a loss like that um but i think ultimately a lot of it comes down to weeding out who's good who's bad and what are they good at and what are they not good at and then pushing them in that direction interesting do you think that um We'll see these organizations or others like it, crypto companies and projects starting to value input from non-crypto backgrounds. Because it feels to me like uh, if you look at the backgrounds at sort of Galaxy Digital and Multicoin, they're a little bit more varied than you got with some of the other funds um, and some of the other protocol um, players. Uh, In short, yeah. I I think that you're going to see more at least curiosity towards the the ways that people have been doing this for a while and got gray hair doing it, have been doing it. Um, but I, th- 
I was having a discussion with a, with a miner um, in China last week. Um, obviously, I wasn't in China. It was by the phone, over the phone. Um, but uh, it, essentially, we were having a discussion about discounting cash flows on very basic things for mining. Um, and he was saying, oh, well, you know, there's actually a lot of things we can learn. It, it was a very, I think, good conversation. It's always refreshing to talk to somebody that set up a profitable business in this industry and not a fly-by-night operation. Um, but I think there's a lot of things out there that because they learned through this new method, they haven't actually sat down and thought about it. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that people in industry have said, we've always done things this way, um, that they could learn a lot. So I'd, I'd love to see more kind of cross-pollination between the new and the old, if it were. And let's, let's hope for that. Well, speaking of the old, uh, article from Business Insider, uh, according to JP Morgan, cryptos would only have value in a dystopian economy. Uh, in a recent notes to its clients, they said they're skeptical of the value cryptocurrencies form apart from in a dystopia where investors have lost confidence in all major reserve assets, including the dollar, euro, yen, and gold, and in the payment system itself, uh, according to a report from Business Insider. The banking giant further said that uh, though cryptocurrencies have a low correlation to tr- traditional asset classes such as shares and bonds, uh, they are not the best bet for diversification. Low correlations have little value if the hedge asset itself is in a bear market. Uh, I guess they're getting lots of questions given um, the recent bearish market tones that we've seen uh, in in the world of, of equities. Um, JP Morgan, of course, have previously stated that cryptocurrencies might one day play a role in diversification of global equity and bond portfolios. So it feels like a bit of a, a walk back from that. Um, but I guess having put that report out there, that it could be a diversification role, they probably, I mean, I'm reading the tea leaves here, there's, there's a chance maybe some clients went, okay, I want to diversify into crypto, and they've gone, maybe that's not a good idea, we need to put out some research that says that. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing to remember is like, the, the research branches and sell-side firms more or less just act as like, a piece of paper that salespeople can use to call somebody. So let's not put too much stock into like what anybody actually believes coming out of these notes. Yeah, It's just something to give you an excuse to talk to a client about something that's interesting. <laughs> Honestly, they, they don't really care. They don't sell or buy Bitcoin uh, other than through their clearing thing on the futures. They don't really care uh, about whether it goes up or down or whether you buy it or not. They may make a few cents on the clearing. Great, they'll take it. Um, but the people making the phone calls are probably selling equities or gold. Or FX or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but but that's why I say, like, if they're selling equities or gold or FX or something and they're getting asked, oh, should I hedge in uh, into crypto? Um, then having some research that they could point out that says, no, it could be, could be a handy shortcut. Yeah. I, and, and I think, like, let's just kind of take this, take this back to, like, what we've been saying on the show. Like, this is not a solid bet. This is a bet. Um, don't don't risk more than you can afford to to practically lose from one day to the next. And we've seen what's happened um, since we've been screaming that a year and a half ago. Um, so I, I think it's it's productive to kind of reflect that into what institutions are saying. That doesn't mean there isn't value and there aren't value in certain scenarios. They've said dystopia. I, I would argue there's probably other scenarios that one could imagine where Bitcoin could become valuable as a new form of an asset or whatever it becomes. Um, but expand that thought. Yeah. Under what scenario does Bitcoin become valuable where it's not a dystopia? Uh, 
I think, I mean, there's probably, there's two main scenarios that I can think of. The first is is kind of that natural retail demand. Um, this is the thing that's foreign. I mean, we're used to big institutions creating a market and then retail investors getting involved, commodities being kind of one of the, the big things. Um, but you could also imagine something that starts to become more that grassroots where people go, I'm going to hold Bitcoin because I think it has a future value without really questioning too much what that means. If the market becomes big enough, deep enough, liquid enough, which maybe it's getting towards that, um, other people could say, well, you know, I also want to have something on that. And maybe over time, this thing starts to grow more or less at the same speed as global inflation. Um, that could be cool. Um, that starts to look more like gold. Maybe it's going to not happen overnight. Maybe it's going to take as long as gold, which is thousands of years. I don't know. I think the other thing, which is is more kind of straight to the point, is if we start to see global systemic shocks outside of you know the dollar system, the euro yen systems, uh, you could imagine people in you know third world countries that have started to uh, lose lots of money through high inflation start to say maybe this is a valid alternative, and at least I'm not taking more risk than I would be holding something else. You're going to need some infrastructure in that. Which comes back to the diversification play, yeah. right? I mean, uh, you, I guess in, in a long way of saying it, like there's a chance it could become a diversification play at some point. There, there is definitely a chance. And I mean, people are more interested in trading small, narrow currencies than we're willing to admit, um, but there's still markets for those. Yeah, it's fair to say. I mean, JP Morgan are an interesting one. They've had their name attached to uh, a lot of blockchain and DLT and crypto. Uh, so on the one hand, you've got Jamie Dimon sort of saying Bitcoin's the devil and then sort of saying, I'm not going to talk about Bitcoin anymore. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got JP Morgan, and to my mind, one of the most uh, aggressive in terms of their work in Quorum, their work with the um, South African Reserve Bank in Quorum, um, their work around the interbank information network using zero-knowledge proofs, um, and, uh, and and the cryptography there. To me, you know, their position as one of the global um, transaction and, and corporate and investment banks is really interesting because historically, you know, if, if I'm uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi or, you know, another tier one brand i want to make sure my money's going to get to the other side of the world um, and i work with you know one of a handful of banks to be able to do that at the top level jp morgan are one of those wells fargo or another there's there's a handful of others uh you know real massive flow monsters they call them in 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 sort of the 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 world we come from colin and, and i guess that to me strikes me as as kind of almost uh hard to square the circle on that they're they're really big believers in this stuff they may even get into tokenization but crypto has been staying away do, do you think that's a sensible approach and, and what are you looking at uh to to see from them in the near future uh, i mean i i think i will put more stock in what teams and people are actually looking at inside of a bank than i will in what a ceo says um because i think a lot of what they're saying is is stale uh compared to what maybe is going on in their organization a lot of chances um, the in most all projects uh, that happen in banks, it's very rare other than where you need to move the needle on something like capital uh, efficiency or, or RWA and offloading that onto to clients that it would come from the top. And a lot of times it's somebody that has a, a bright spark of an idea is able to rally enough people around that in a bank. And I mean, you and I both were in a similar position um, and then get them to go out and try it with a couple of clients. And it's it's all about that kind of persuasiveness. Um, so I think what I'm going to continue to pay attention to is the same thing is who, who out there is doing something and not getting, not getting the love from the top management or having top management saying something different, but getting love from kind of that middle management to say, Hey, maybe there's something here. I'm going to let you run with it. So interestingly, um, 
Jamie Dimon has come out and said, and I think it's always been uh, translated incorrectly, but it, you know, people see it very dubiously, um, that he really believes in the technology. And when you look at the interbank information network, they've had 157 banks sign up to this thing. And when you look at the problem it solves, like one of the main problems with SWIFT is I can send a transaction and not know when it's going to get there, how much it's going to cost, or even if it's going to get there. And there might be three or four banks helping me try and get it there. If you think about this, like uh, routers on the internet, like uh, that router typically knows its route to the end and can communicate with all the other routers. There's no such thing as that for interbank payments and IIN sort of does that. Uh, So, But it's doing that in a way where they're using Quorum to do it, but they're sharing much more of the information rather than the payment itself. I think that's an interesting sign of things to come. But you know what's interesting in that example is if it weren't for this blockchain noise, arguably we would never have GPI which solves a lot of those problems and came from Swift. Um, I think this, so I really want to reach out to the guys at GPI and the guys at JP Morgan and have that debate about the gap between the two because GPI does solve some of the problem uh, in that this is where it is, um, but that low-level interbank sort of, this is really where it is, this is the gremlins, this is the error we found, um, that you need some privacy for. You can't just broadcast that with an API to every participant. You might need uh, all of the banks to uh, know that a, th- a request has happened and to, to to have proofs that a thing is happening, to know where mm. it is in a process, um, whilst getting deeper access to those systems than you might allow more of a public API to see. So that I think there is a nuance there that's really, really important. Because remember, a lot of this happens inside the firewall of a bank. So you need something that can can work with proofs rather than just, um, just fire and forget data. Mm, yeah, and you know a whole lot more about payments than I do. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I thought when I was when I was at the Swift conference, it was interesting to kind of see some of the claims they're making about it. Um, and it, it's clear that it's happened in the last three years. Um, one also questions what are kind of the macro events in technology and finance that have happened over the last three years. Strange that one, huh? <laughs> Indeed, we we know people at Swift, we know people at JPM. Let's reach out to them and see if we can get this done. Um, coming to a podcast near you soon. Uh, all right, last story this week: um, Cointelegraph.com uh, res- from research firm Masari CEO um, threatening calls after a critical XRP report were made by punk kids. Um, so the CEO of uh, Masari, Ryan Selkis, um, has allegedly received threats after his company published a critical analysis of Ripple. Selkis announced that he received two threatening phone calls and asked uh, several high-ranking employees of Ripple, including its CEO and CTO, um, to denounce those threats against his family, which he has alleged are coming from the XRP community. Um, Ryan Selkis later tweeted, I'm at the police station um, and it's a punk kid, most likely. Um I think it's fair to say that crypto Twitter hasn't covered itself in glory. Um, there's a really long report on CoinDesk this week looking at the the XRP army and um, and the pros and cons and, and both sides of that coin um, because you know, there is an argument coming from uh, people that follow XRP uh, quite closely that, look, there's a lot of people critical of XRP that are um, kind of doing this to make us look bad. Um, but... Um, you know, I think regardless of the motivations for this behavior, I think there's no downside to to criticizing it, period, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I would love to see the management of Ripple. And I know that without getting into the intricacies of, of any links between the cryptocurrency, the cryptocurrency community and Ripple, the company, 
uh, there are a lot of people who are out supporting what's coming out, and there are a lot of things that sound like Ripple is is aiding and abetting this. Um, I, I think they need to come out very strongly and denounce this behavior, as we all do. I, I think it would be super easy to say um, this this is not in our name. We don't endorse this sort of behavior. We Ripple do not want to see any of this sort of behavior from any cryptocurrencies and don't do it in our name, please. Um, or don't do it in the name of XRP, uh, which they could then make the point that we believe we're logically separated from XRP, but some people are confused about that. But we're you know, like- make But have a major points. financial interest in it at the same time. And, and that's not saying that one is the other. Yes, exactly. Uh, so they have an interest in the optics and how people are experiencing that and and i do think it's um i think it's time for us all to clean up the space and have sensible conversations about it rather than uh just being in this place where it all suddenly gets dark on you um it's, it's <laughs> like it just has in the room you're sitting in <laughs> yeah it did literally the lights just went out the xrp army can hear me uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gonna jump out of the roof <laughs> indeed uh stories we didn't have time to cover this week um Blockchain project Polkadot uh, plans a second token sale to raise 60 million. Let's see if they can achieve that in this market. Uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, apparently two groups account for more than a billion dollars of cryptocurrency hacks. Um, and also coming from Coindesk.com, local Bitcoins reveal a security breach within some wallets. Um, uh, all that and a lot more available on Coindesk.com and the Wall Street Journal. It's time for Twitter of the Week. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from a Pompoliano. Pompoliano? How do you say his name? Pompoliano? Do you know something like that? Pompoliano. We'll just go with Pomp himself. (laughs) Yeah, that guy. Um, Apparently, Venezuela just tried to withdraw $1.2 billion of their own gold out of the Bank of England. They were denied this request by the bank. Then he goes on to say, if you don't think uncensorable, unseizable money is going to become the standard, you're absolutely nuts. Long Bitcoin short the bankers. (laughs) I can't imagine a worse way to try to sell like the values of Bitcoin than this. I know we've got a dictator of a country that has seen them go through massive inflation, has seen the real living standards of people plummet. And uh, and I'm quite fortunate to have a number of friends from Venezuela uh, who are going at pains through their social media right now to explain what is happening is absolutely in the interest of the people, that their family have been starving, that they long since left the country when they got the first opportunity to. Um, and it's frankly uh, horrifying what's been happening in that country in the past uh, decade decade or so in the name of their people uh, and to have uh, a government that uh, looks like it's lost an election as of refusing to give up power and then to come out with this statement really really is concerning um, and to then do so in the name of hey there's this really shiny potential digital gold thing um, and it could make the situation where people's lives they're really really hard it could make that worse for them um, because that government could stay in power if the if only this technology were were pushed more I it's really naive. Yeah, and I think it also overlooks, you know, the the facts of what's going to happen. It's no government in its right mind is going to say, "Hey, we're just going to give the president of this country or the the head of the central bank full, you know, unfettered access to a cryptocurrency if they decide to hold them. They're going to have something that looks a whole lot similar to this gold. They'll have somebody in the Bank of England or, you know, in Japan or wherever else it is in the world holding keys um, in a multi-signature setup. They're not just going to let one guy go, yep, okay, extract. Um, it's, it's really, it's uh, tone deaf and it's naive. 
Yeah, I, th- I think there is this um, sense of we want this outlaw world in which everybody looks after their own. We all own guns and um, everything all's fair and there's no government. And it's like that might be what you want, but it's probably not what the rest of the world wants. So there's the yeah, tone deaf is is. Uh, probably putting it lightly. Um, time for our next segment, though. We, uh, our North American partner, Sam Moll, caught up with FNBO, the First National Bank of Omaha's Director of Product Development, Ingrid Waddell. Over to that interview. So I, I, I find this interesting because we're in Omaha. Um, blockchain is an interesting area when it comes to financial services. And I don't know how many people would look at Omaha and go, yeah. That's that's where this is going to take off. <laughs> Absolutely. But how, how do you describe your role at FNBO when it comes to this area? Yep. Let me tell you first kind of how I got to blockchain, because then that kind of sets us up for uh, what yeah. we're trying to do going forward. Uh, I worked on the product and innovation team under Adrian, and he asked me to do some research into cashless society. And as I started to do that, I was looking at it from an innovation and disruption standpoint. It led me right to blockchain. So at that point in time, uh, Adrian basically tasked me with, all right, well, go build what you need to build in the space. Well, I have a a business background, not a technology background. So at first, that was kind of uh, overwhelming to me. But after I uh, started kind of getting up to speed in the space and started to even break down, became a lot of friends with people on Twitter. Uh, and following that, then, uh, you know, it kind of led me to building the network in the space and hopefully bringing value back to Omaha. We have a lot of Fortune 500 companies here where I think blockchain can be impacted. As you mentioned, I work for First National Bank of Omaha from UP to ConAgra to Tenasca, an energy trading company, and then our ag space. Uh, that's kind of where I thought our focus was. And let's be true to what our niche is and see how we fit in the space. Yeah, you, you already won all kind of points because you didn't say the blockchain. Um, <laughs> I've done this interview before with some other people. I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. This is never going to make the air when they said that. No. Um, I do like also that you, that you said you can build up a network around Twitter because I do think, think that's pretty funny when it comes to when it comes to blockchain art. You know, you can go down the crypto path and yep. poke your eyes out um, yep. over some of the folks out there. But when it comes to um, really drilling down on different use cases, yes. and just not for financial services, right? It really right. doesn't matter. If it's an asset, it's an asset. That's right. And a lot of those examples you gave, for those that aren't, aren't familiar with ConAgra, that's right. right, huge employer here in Omaha, what, what does yep. ConAgra do? Uh, ConAgra is a food service company, food production company. So, you know, lots of uh, tracking of data, lots of distribution. Um, and then in the supply chain network, you'd think they fit in that space, Berkshire Hathaway as well. I know they're looking into the area of food tracking and distribution as well. So how long ago was it that Adrian said, hey, kind of dive off into this area? How long has it been? A uh, year and a half. Oh, actually. So that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing how long it takes to kind of ramp up the speed on this, though, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Well, at first you're like, okay, what even is this? And yeah. how do I tangibly see a technology and figure out what a technology is, uh, let alone start to think about where it applies and what use cases apply to, and then how to drill down into it to actually bring it to a manageable area where you can add value. So do you have the um, position within the bank where you have to explain this up the chain? Yeah, you're nodding and sighing yes. at the same time. That's, that's, a, that's a tough job. because it, it is. Let's be honest. 
uh, going back to about 2015, 2016, way overhyped this yep. for financial services. That world peace was going to be solved. Actually, it was tweets yep. that said that, right? Um, voting um, yep. would be solved by blockchain. You know, cancer. I mean, yep. we, <laughs> everything. Yeah, you know, we got it slightly <laughs> carried away. Absolutely. Um, 2017, 2018 was supposedly the years when we'd prove out use cases. Do you think we're getting there? I think that uh, I think a lot of people are making a lot of good strides. And even in the year and a half's time that I've seen, the problems that existed a year and a half ago of you know uh, difficulty to even build in the space and knowing what uh, blockchain to build on or how to access that, people have come in to make that easier. Uh, so that then, I guess, brings about more use cases so that we can see what works and doesn't work. So it speeds along innovation, which I think is exciting. Yeah, I, I like it when we burn through hype, right? When we yes. go with the Gardner's hype cycle. That's right. Um, when we get past the nonsense and, and say, look. And we've right. seen that with the crypto bubble, right? Uh, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> you know, I was looking today, I was, I was, I was kind of curious to some of the news that came out today, uh, you know, NASDAQ. Um, they've obviously, NASDAQ's been doing a lot yes. in this space. This isn't new, right? So right. they announced a, a $20 million um, funding deal that they did today. And I'm trying to remember who that is with. I have my phone in front of me. I sound a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> um, Symbian, they got a $20 million um, funding round with NASDAQ. Yep. So that's not surprising. That's right. A ton of alumni coming out of JP Morgan. That's right. Um, I mean, multiple folks coming out of there that's right are doing incredibly well and have startups now that's right space. i think one of them just announced something around aws uh a solution there i think that okay. came out today did it i, remember I didn't right. see that yeah, well, it's every day <laughs> there is something every day i mean <laughs> it's hard I don't, to keep up with it all <laughs> yeah i mean were you surprised at, at how rapidly this is changing when you first got into it yeah i mean i didn't i guess i didn't know what to expect i figured um you know, things are changing rapidly, yet you don't see mass adoption yet. Right. But it's the path to get there, right? So, um, you know, I guess I'm not doing a very good job of explaining that. But uh, oh, trust me, this listening audience, <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. Okay. They're, they're all nodding, going, oh, hell yeah. Yeah, because they're all tired of it, right? Yeah. Um, because I'm, I'm confident a significant portion of them are getting beat up over crypto and they're like, right. we understand that's over here. Yes. We're talking about something completely different. We're talking about assets. That's right. Right. And we're talking about um, networks, networks and assets and being able to, to verify in the, in that distributed manner. Yes. Right. What you're moving. And when it comes to this industry, yes, a bank like FNBO. Yes. Where, where, um, Largest private bank in the U.S., I believe. Yes, it is. I remember right. It is. Um, and, and multiple product lines. Yep. Um, so there, there are multiple applications where this can come into effect. It, it can. And we have a history of innovation at First National. I mean, You do. I don't think people know that, actually. Can you give an example of that? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we were the fifth credit card issuer in the United States. Yep. So very exciting. Part of the original um, team of Visa. That's exactly right. right. That's right. That's right. And just to, as you delve into our history, you know, how uh, we're sixth generation family being privately owned. Uh, and when you look back into uh, Clark's grandfather and what his generation did as far as entering into uh, the the loan space, I mean, loans uh, were not something that happened. People didn't just go buy things on credit back then and how he incrementally evolved his business to go from an installment loan to then being like, well, people can buy refrigerators and things like that on an installment loan, but how do they buy tennis shoes? leading us into the charge card. 
and being a fifth adopter and issuer in that space. What I think is most amazing about uh, our history and the story is how he built out both sides of the business, how he built out the merchant side as well as the acquiring side. And then, as you mentioned, Visa, but before Visa was the Bank of AmeriCard, as networks came into space, he knew that's what he needed to scale his business very similar to what you kind of see with blockchain. Yeah, and I'll tell you when, you, when it's in the card space for anybody that's been around there, FMBO is a a powerhouse. Yes. Um, <laughs> when it comes to that, you'd be amazed um, of what their presence actually is. So one of the things that is really interesting, and we keep coming back to this Nebraska thing and this <laughs> Omaha thing, but you're having um, an event the week of February 18th. February 20th February is the 20th. date. Yes. And um, it's, it is literally around, I mean, would you have a name for this? Gateway into Blockchain, oh, sponsored by First like National. <laughs> um, and, but the speakers that you have coming, you talked about going on yes. Twitter and building up a network. Can you talk about who's actually coming to Omaha? Absolutely. Uh, we have Sandra Rowe, the CEO of the Global Blockchain Business Council, and we're very excited to have her, uh, as well as MakerDAO. We're having Stephen Becker and Greg DePisco uh, come in to kind of give the crypto view on the space, a little further reaching space, and then Amber Balde from Clover. Yeah, I think you did all right. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the one person that doesn't know that, Amber basically led the efforts for Chase when That's it came right. to this space. That's uh, right. Before um, Christine break, pursuing her own. Like, like yeah. quite a few alumni have out of Chase. That's right. But I actually think this is healthy for the industry. I really do. I think having folks that are at the large enterprise level and, and in banking and within yes. financial services, and this can be the same for insurance. It can be the same for logistics. It can be yep. the same for um, um, the ag space that yep. you mentioned. I think it's important to have people within the industry that um, have that experience that are coming out and working in with this because we can get past a lot of the hype because there are a lot of brilliant minds in the space. There are a lot of brilliant minds in the space. And a lot of them are going to be in Omaha on the 20th. That's right. <laughs> that looks like. Very exciting. Um, how, how did you actually get in contact with them? Is this through Twitter, each of them? Uh, some of them through Twitter. And, uh, you know, originally I'd reached out to Amber while she was still at J.P. Morgan yeah. and got connected to Christine Moy. Then when Amber went off on her own, uh, I got connected to her as well. So I kind of Got a uh, double my connection on that one. Uh, and Sandra Rowe, I'd been following her. She was actually my first YouTube I had listened to of somebody explaining blockchain in the space, but she was at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange at the time and uh, got connected to her through there. And then when she went to the GBBC, uh, continued that connection. MakerDAO through Twitter through following what they're doing. And, uh, you know, it's amazing as you see somebody like them that's more, that's in the crypto space, but they do what we do at a bank. They basically bring in deposits and extend credit. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see how they do it just with a different asset and uh, in a different with a te- different technology. I mean, there's no doubt there's drama um, yes. within this space, right? Um, <laughs> there is. Um, more in crypto. <laughs> yes. But, you know, there, there's obviously folks that um, look at different solutions, right, and believe this is the right way to go and not. But what I found actually have more interesting experience that you've had is that our people are more than willing to talk to you yes. and reach out and share because it's such a, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, it's like Venice back in the day, right? Yes. I mean, there's so many creatives That's there right. and we're so early in the stages of this. That's right. That uh, we need to get past the hype and 
get the executive rooms to buy into it. And it sounds like at FMBO, that's right. At a CEO level on down, they're backing you on this. That's right. We're uh, definitely moving the needle in the education space and now uh, seeing what we can build in 2019. Well, I'll be curious to see how the, the actual conference goes and yes. it'll be very interesting then. Hopefully we can come back and talk to you and the team then. Okay? That would be great. All right. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ingrid and Sam, and thank you, Colin G. Platt, from your almost freezing near a field location. Well, just above freezing near a field. Certainly not negative 50. Not negative 50 at all. Uh, as a reminder to listeners, uh, this podcast is made by 11FS. We are a challenger consultancy and venture studio working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, we have built uh, digital products and services for clients large and small. Uh, if you have a look at metal, M-E-T-T-L-E.co.uk, you'll get an example of the sort of work we're doing. We're also working with Norway's largest bank to build a brand new core banking platform called Foundry. Uh, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button is right there. And if you're already subscribed, why don't you throw us a review? We understand you might not want to give us five stars because, hey, you put the word Simon in this these show notes here, Colin. What's that about? You might not want to give us five stars because Colin changed my show notes. Uh, but nonetheless, it would be I super helpful. Clearly, this is Petrit. <laughs> now Colin's blaming Petrit. This is this is shambolic behavior. Um, look, it's been an amazing show. Thank you so much. Why could people find out more about you Colin G Platt on on the Twitter uh, at Colin G Platt at Colin G Platt you can find me uh, Simon at 11fs.com or at SY Taylor on Twitter I just want to thank our production team here uh, I'm producer Petrick and of course Alex already so thank you very much thank you for listening we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week goodbye for now